Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today is a really powerful episode. We are speaking with holistic counselor and author, Shannon Moyer Semenye. Shannon is a leader, a wife, a mother, friend, poet, published author, mentor, and human. She is a believer in fundamental rights, standing up for oneself, owning your truth, and being a kind and compassionate human being, leaving a very positive impact wherever possible. Shannon dives into all things trauma, PTSD, owning our story, speaking up, sharing our truth, understanding our own intuition and voice, how to work through trauma, how to recognize those symptoms, some tips of how to move through it. She speaks so openly about how trauma impacts and affects our brain and how we have to learn to process those pieces and get to the root cause of our trauma in order to move through it. This is a incredibly powerful episode. I cannot say that enough. I thank Shannon for being so real and raw with us here as she shares her story in such a powerful way and how she's showing up to create an impact and help others to move through their trauma in their lives. This episode is going to go down as one of my most honored and just grateful to have her in this space to share her story. Thank you, Shannon. I know you are going to love this episode. Welcome to the show today, Shannon. It's so great to have you here. Uh, Thank you for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I am going to dive into a few questions so people can get to know who you are Mm -hmm. before we dive into you and your story. Does that sound okay? Awesome. Awesome. Tell everyone where you are from. I'm from London, Ontario, so kind of halfway between Detroit and Toronto for people who try to visualize it on a map. I love London. We actually lived there for two years when we were first married. Mm -hmm. Really? Both of my kids are born in London. Awesome. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't grow up here, but my husband did. And when we got out of university and decided where we were going to relocate to, it was natural because I didn't really want to go back to my hometown. And what's your hometown? Um, Sweeburg, Ontario, which very few people will actually know where that is. But if you've traveled on the 401 yes. from London towards Toronto, yes. there's like Sweeburg Road is an exit. Like past Tilsonburg area? Um, yeah, just outside of Woodstock. Okay. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm from originally from Tilsonburg and then oh, awesome. London and then Waterloo. Mm-hmm. Both, we went to school in Waterloo. We went to Laurier. Uh-huh. 
See, small small circles, right? (laughs) Really small circles. Do you happen to have a book that you have read that has been impactful for you? It's funny. I've been asked this a couple of times and it always goes back to a book that I read when I was actually quite young, probably in grade seven. So 11, 12 years old, and it's called The Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell. Tell us about it. It's beautiful. It's all about this indigenous girl who is left stranded on this island and she has to kind of figure it out for herself. And has to survive this really harsh, intense climate, um, wolves, all of these different different things that are, are thrown at her. And she has to get by on her own resolve and her own determination. And I always go back to that because it kind of has this foundational message of you have to save yourself. <laughs> well, I have goosebumps already. Because I do, because what it's interesting, you read that when you were younger, but there was always something that pulled you Mm -hmm. to it or you pulled a message out of it. And it's obviously something that has resonated for you in your life. Deeply, deeply. I actually just bought it for, I have a 10 year old son. I just bought it for him for Christmas. Partially, I think because I want to read it again Mm -hmm. and knowing that it's back in the house, I'll be able to do that. But I want him to have that as a foundation. I, well, and this is like ahead of where we are at, but I think that if there's one thing I, people have asked me, what would you wish that your kids could have seen? Or what would you wish that Mm -hmm. honestly, there's just a level of resilience that I think that the more our kids can be exposed to young, whether Mm -hmm. it is helping others out, seeing, like seeing that, you know, some people have it unbelievably difficult and still like thrive and prosper and all those things. I think there's a lot of ways to show that. And even as simple as books and things are available, because as as we're Mm -hmm. as parents battling different things in social media and seeing what's out there, what a great way. Yes, it's only book, but it's a great way to start to expose them to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'll have to definitely look that up. Do you have a, like a quote or something that has been grounding for you? Um, I believe the gentleman's name is David Lloyd George. It's a, it's a quote from high school. Um, you can't leap a chasm in two jumps. Oh, you are you like have throwing to, all you, new things. You, I love this. Can't. <laughs> you, you have to do it all at once. You can't be half in something or start something and go halfway. You've got to do the entire thing. You've got to show up for yourself fully and completely to actually Mm. get to the other side. Yeah. You, you can't, that's, that is beautiful. You can't toe dip it. I would say you can't toe Mm -hmm. dip it. You have to. And, and that doesn't mean the second that you decide that, yes, I'm all in that nothing's going to go wrong. Right. Right. You can have, of course, (laughs) life happens along the way. Oh, it doesn't stop, but it's really that piece. That is beautiful. You have to just go all in and go after it. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Then what drives you? What is, what lights you up and what drives you? Honestly, the, the understanding, and I I think the seeing somebody go from really fundamentally broken to reclaiming themselves and standing 
that kind of cliche saying of standing in your power, but really truly looking at somebody and looking at all of the crap that they've been through and recognizing that they are a completely different human being once they go through that full healing cycle. Mm -hmm. It is such a beautiful thing to be able to hold space for and witness. I I just, I, I love it so much. Well, you've prompted me with some questions I definitely want to come back to here. Amazing. Yeah, I definitely, you definitely have. One thing I want to say is, and I'm sure you would absolutely understand and relate to this, is the fact that sometimes we tend to look at people who we think have all their shit together. They've got all Mm -hmm. their stuff together. Yet we, again, we know the, we never, we know the glory, but we don't know the story. I find that some of the people who have had, like who most people would look at and go, that's so easy for them. Or look at what they've done. If you really looked at their backstory, the average person wouldn't have persevered through half of what they did. Totally. So we need to give like that credit. And I love how you talked about that is that, so I really want to talk about a couple things here and you've got a very powerful story and you talk about the healing cycle and owning your truth is so Mm -hmm. important to you, which I mean, I don't know how you haven't been a guest on here before because this is literally (laughs) all that I talk about. But it is, it is. It's literally all I talk about owning your choices. So what does owning your truth mean to you? What does that mean? I think I got to a point recently, kind of in the past nine months or so, that Mm -hmm. it became so apparent to me that my healing was far more important than the discomfort of others. And I started to understand myself in a completely different way that I prioritized myself. I prioritized my mental health, my healing, all of that because I owned my story and I wasn't, I wasn't willing anymore to kind of stuff it down and make it quiet just to make sure somebody else would be comfortable and okay. It doesn't, it doesn't dismiss the fact that these things happened to me just because I, I wasn't going to talk about it because it might impact my parents or my sibling or my friends from years ago. These things happened and nobody benefits from being quiet about it. I certainly didn't for so long. So why would I do that to myself anymore? It's just a punishment to yourself. So is it a punishment because it's almost easier to stay in the pain that we do know as opposed to the discomfort that we think is coming? I think it, yes, to a degree. I think um, it's a punishment to ourselves because we're not truly living in the full expression of who we are mm-hmm. when we quiet all of that narrative, when we, when we turn the inner dialogue off because it might, oh gosh, it might make somebody feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, that they need to sit with. Maybe there was something that they were complicit with that just because they were uncomfortable, they didn't want to listen to your story then. So, I mean, we're just both, we're both right in this spot right here because there's so much power in what you're saying. Where, how do you get to the tipping point of saying, mm, I'm not doing it this way anymore. I'm just, I'm not, I can't be more concerned with the comfort of everyone else and live in a miserable state where I know what I mean miserable, but not living in my highest form Mm -hmm. because I don't want to make anyone else uncomfortable, but I am deathly uncomfortable. I think for me, I mean, there were a couple of pivotal moments that happened where I was 
raging all the time. Like rageaholic anger was a huge sign that I wasn't okay. And when that kind of became my norm and my kids were experiencing that and my spouse was experiencing that and I saw how detrimental it was to our life as a nuclear family. But these people that I was seeking so hard to find the approval of or to find the validation in or to make their comfort more important when they weren't showing up for me and saying, hey, I believe you. Mm-hmm. It was kind of that point where it's like, what am I doing here? Why am I setting myself on fire to keep them warm when they pull out a bucket and pour the water on? This doesn't make sense anymore. Well, at the end of the day, if they have a bucket and you've got the fire and you're in fire, they're going to use the bucket for themselves. They're still not yeah. using that to help you out. Yeah. And that's the, so here's the interesting thing you can carry a lot of anger towards those people who are going to put the buckets on themselves. Mm hmm. But of course that doesn't serve you either. No. Right. It doesn't serve you either. So learning to move past that. Is there, would you like to dive in and share a little bit more of what your story is? Sure. I mean, it's an open book at this point. I like I open kind books. of open that Pandora's box and I talk very openly about these things because there's so many people out there that can't find their words because they're still in that making everybody else comfortable is more important. Painful stage. It's painful. Yeah. It really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And when you Mm -hmm. can get to the point where you can share openly and say, listen, these are the shitty things that have happened to me, but it doesn't have to hold you captive in your past. You can get past it. It's a really powerful place to be. So 100%. My, my foundational childhood upbringing stuff, I mean, it was, it was wrapped in trauma kind of from the get-go, even like before I was even born. My mom was in a car accident with me when I was, when she was five and a half months pregnant. Mm. Um, so I was kind of dubbed that miracle baby, the one who shouldn't have lived kind of thing. I even found like the letters that my dad had written to my mom in like wedged in her Bible at one point and him talking about how he really needed to make this decision between her and baby. And I don't, I don't begrudge him any of that, any of those letters, any of those things. Cause like now as a spouse and as a parent, I get it, but there was always this like higher expectation for me to perform academically for me to perform in all of these different ways. Right. And yet because of those expectations and the narrative around that, my relationship with my sibling was wrapped in so many layers of abuse and trauma. Um, older or younger sibling? Older. Okay. Older sibling. I was assaulted really from the ages of eight to 14. And because it was the eighties, nineties, it was kind of that you don't air the family laundry sort of mentality that you don't talk about these things. They're really uncomfortable. You just kind of stuff it down. Nobody needs to know what goes on behind closed doors. Oh no, we don't share our stories with anybody because we might look like we might look like we are. Yeah. We don't want to know. Yep. I understand. And then that kind of like, that was kind of my foundation for relationships with like romantic relationships, Mm -hmm. even as a teenager. And Mm -hmm the boys that I would date and the treatment I would receive from them was always toxic and abusive and gaslighting and mental abuse and whatnot. 
And why is that? Just so that you can, just so people can really tie a bow around that. Like you, we go after relationships that fulfill what we feel we are worthy of. Yes. 1000%. Yeah. I just, I I'm not blaming. I just want people to understand that connection that until you heal that we continually go after, it's like we're going after the same person and people will say, Oh my gosh, every other person or relationship I've had has been so toxic. I'm like, okay. And until you dig yourself out of it, they're going to that's yes. just the way it works. Um, and then, I mean, fast forward into university life. I, that, that point of my life was actually pretty awesome. Um, it was good. It was happy. It was fulfilling. I met who later became my husband and the father mm-hmm. of my kids and all that kind of stuff. And then I graduated and my dad passed away, which was probably, you know, looking at sexual assault being a relatively significant trauma and me outwardly saying losing my dad was the biggest trauma that I will ever have in my life. It kind of overshadowed and outweighed everything. Then there's postpartum psychosis and miscarriage and eventually a PTSD diagnosis, which made so much sense when it came out. And I was like, well, obviously I've got PTSD. Look at all of the stuff that's happened but I thought I was just mad. And I thought, you know, when I had postpartum depression and psychosis, I thought it was just, you know, I was struggling to adjust, but could you, could you explain postpartum, um, Mm -hmm. explain that a little bit more detail? Sure. So postpartum depression and psychosis for me, I mean, it goes, it goes a variety of ways. Sometimes it's your, sobbing and you've, you know, you're in that couch burrito kind of thing on the couch and you cannot get up for the life of you. Other Mm -hmm. times it's like suicidal ideations and whatnot. For me, it was kind of in the middle, but leaned more towards like rageaholic tendencies. So I would completely blank out of my mind. Once I would get angry, I wouldn't know how I got from point A to point B, but point B was like considering driving off a bridge kind of thing. And I wouldn't know how I got there at all. My main abuser, so my my sibling, um, is also a drug addict. So I knew that I was predisposed to that addictive behavior, that that mindset and whatnot. Bipolar runs in my in my dad's family. So when it came to getting treated, I didn't necessarily want to go down the route of pharmaceutical medication. Because this was, was that already clear. Like you knew that you were like, no, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I knew it right away. Now, when I went and I had subsequent pregnancies, I said to my spouse, cause it took two and a half years to get through the psychosis with talk therapy and like natural type stuff. I think I maybe could have gotten through it a little bit quicker had I got, had I done the pharmaceutical route, but I was worried about the slippery slope that I could have gone down and how much more complicated it could have all gotten Mm -hmm. had that happened too. And I didn't want to do that. So I told my husband in subsequent pregnancies, you know what, if we start seeing the same kind of signs, if I'm like mentally checking out and I'm depriving myself of sleep and I'm super hypervigilant and paranoid, I'm going to just go and get the the medication and we're going to deal with it a different way. Well, first off, thank you. Like, thank you for sharing that, (laughs) but that communication, like that is probably... That's really powerful. A lot of people who are dealing with this level of mental health aren't typically having open communications like this. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's, um, 
I mean, I, I don't have anything to hide anymore, right? Like, like I said, nobody benefits from quieting the story. And if one person hears it and they're like, oh my gosh, that's happening with me and they go and seek help, it's all worth it. Absolutely. Oh, it's all worth ab- it. Absolutely. I mean, you've given a real fast track to that process of what mm-hmm. you went through. And you said something earlier, like what is the full healing of the full healing cycle? What does that look like? What does it include? If you could just share a little bit with us from your own perspective. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's going to be different for everybody, depending on how your brain works, how spiritual you are, how grounded you mm-hmm. are, your support system, even it's all going to look different. But for me, Um, my husband and I were in couples counseling, working on Mm -hmm. communication together. And I had some really high stress clients at the time. I was, I was a birth and postpartum doula. And I had a lot of clients that were leading my brain down the path of you can't save them. And if they get hurt, you can't do anything about it. So that kind of like wanting to save people because Mm -hmm. I couldn't save my dad, And I, at that point, didn't have the wherewithal to save my younger self. And our couples therapist looked at me and said, you know, you have PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh my God, I totally do. I, because of who I am, I like to research things. I like to know all of the things. I want to know what my options are so that I can make an educated decision that feels best for me individually. So I was looking at PTSD and a lot of the information ends up being like, um, war veterans and right. I was just going to say like, it's one of the two massive trauma, what we would perceive as that massive trauma, but there's got to be a certain level to not measure, but when you carry trauma for years or decades and Mm -hmm. you don't process it, then it's, you know, it's not like one is worse than the other, but I I do agree what you said, because all we've ever really heard about PTSD until even the last, what, five years or so Mm -hmm. has been all about more war and dealing with that. And I, I, I so love that you're talking about this because I think it's a really powerful topic that needs to be discussed. Mm-hmm. So yes, sorry. I didn't want to cut you off there. That's that just, okay. Yeah. Trauma is all relative to the individual, right? So mm-hmm. you could be having a, like I used to say this to my birth clients, like if you have trauma, it could be that the nurse said something that you didn't agree with mm-hmm. and you internalized that comment and it made you feel bad about your whole process, but your body reads that as a trauma. It could be, then it could be as severe as watching a car accident and, and the playing out of that scene plays over in your head in recurrent nightmares. It's, it's all relative to your own individual experience in life as a human being. So just because I experienced some stuff that is classical trauma, mm-hmm. I've also experienced some stuff that maybe isn't classical trauma mm-hmm. and that's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't downplay anybody's. I I appreciate you saying that. I really do because I think it will land with people who will say, I feel like I've had PTSD or trauma, but Mm -hmm. mine isn't as bad as hers. So it can't be this whole ridiculous comparison where we think we're on levels of who's got it worse than others, which is ridiculous. But it's just thank you for clarifying that because I think that that needed to be needed to be said. For sure. And Mm Trauma, it's, it took me a long time to understand that trauma isn't a mental health issue. It's not a diagnosis of anything chemically imbalanced in your body. It's an injury to your brain. 
So mm-hmm. just like you would go and fix your arm if you fell off your bike and you broke it, mm-hmm. when trauma happens and we have this injury to our brain, we deserve to be able to fix that too. Oh, absolutely. Like, well, yeah. absolutely. We deserve to be able to have that, to fix that too. That is, that mm-hmm. is so, so true. So yeah. how, how do we recognize when there is that underlying trauma? Like I have a few things that I want to ask about it, but I just mm-hmm. want your intake of like, how do you recognize when it's like something comes up and it's like, Oh, that doesn't feel right. Or I think that there's something there. I mean, there's classical trauma triggers of like not being able to go back to the place where you got bad news. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't go back to the place where I found out that my dad passed away. Um, and I had to a couple of times cause it was actually at Bingaman's in Kitchener. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he passed away there. Uh, no, okay. no, but my husband and I were at the like costume ball, the CTV costume ball. Oh, on so you were gotcha. So like in yeah. oh on Halloween. So I'm as we're getting close to recording this time. Yes, I understand. Um, but no, I see what you're saying. Like even going back yeah. to the place where you were when you got yeah. the news. Yes, I understand. Yeah. The time of day, what you were wearing, the colors that were around you, all of these little things that people don't even like, they're just normal everyday things. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, like if you got in a car accident when you were turning left, mm-hmm. left hand turns are probably going to be a struggle for you because your brain remembers that something bad happened the last time you turned left. So it it, was so, that brain is so powerful. mm. So even just that you're saying, it's not even being in the car. It's the fact that my accident happened when I turned left. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how the brain fragments the memories, but also pieces together new things. And Mm. if you had like a, um, a visceral response to something and it mimics the response you had in another trauma situation, it will sandwich those two things together. So it Mm -hmm. becomes a bigger trauma than what it maybe the first one was. Mm -hmm. It compounds each other. So for me, like my main triggers were hypervigilance at night, paranoia. I found out that my dad passed away at 10.30 p.m., Mm-hmm. So that time of night was really, really hard settling down to sleep because I knew that if I went to sleep, something bad might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the paranoia was really, really, really difficult. Um, my husband traveled a lot for work. He, he was kind of splitting time between here and Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So anytime he was gone, it was like, almost OCD like tendencies of like triple checking the locks, making sure I would even put baby gates in our house. We even still Mm -hmm. have them up now, but I kind of figured that if somebody was going to break in, they're not going to see the baby gate in the middle of the night. I'm going to hear them. So then I can respond. See how the the brain has already mapped out exactly Mm. what it's going to do. Like it's amazing how, how I always say the brain's job is to keep us safe. It's, it's job is to prevent Mm -hmm. pain and Mm -hmm. keep us safe. And most of the way that it keeps us safe is actually not keeping us safe, right? It's not, but it believes it's doing its job. Yeah. It's this, it has this really beautiful yet terribly not helpful protection mechanism of fragmenting. (laughs) Yes. And of, of putting us on high alert. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for me, like it was the anger, the days where I couldn't even figure out what needed to go into the kids' lunches. 
it was just too overwhelming. So I just wouldn't do it. And I would just Mm -hmm. shut down. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's classical stuff of like the anxiety and the depression. Those are just symptoms of something like PTSD. The main things with the PTSD largely are the fear, the hypervigilance, the paranoia, um, the, the almost wanting to retreat sometimes. Like, I mean, there's, there's the four, the four classical adrenaline responses, the, the fight, the flight, the fawn, um, or the freeze, those types of things are, they, they, they marry very nicely, not helpfully, but they marry nicely with PTSD. Um, have you listened to, and you just made me think of it because it really will tie into PTSD comment here. I just listened to a podcast with Brene Brown. So Brene mm. Brown's like one of my absolute favorites, mm-hmm. but she had on two authors. I think they're sisters and the name of the book is called burnout and they talked about PTSD in there and they were saying something that really hit home for me and it seemed so logical, but it hadn't really, I didn't put the pieces together. And mm-hmm. what it said was, is that most of us feel that way we can remove the trigger that causes the PTSD and causes the stressor. And then we don't understand why we're still experiencing the stressor, but mm-hmm. we didn't close the loop of what the stress is. We didn't seal it. We didn't close it. And I was like, that was so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. It makes sense logically, but the way that they, I'm not doing it justice. The way that they explained it from a scientific standpoint is that now we have this expectation that we should be fine because the trigger mm-hmm. is gone, but we haven't dealt with, or like, as you talked about, like the healing cycle, mm-hmm. we haven't dealt with that at all. So we are not putting ourselves in a good position. Just wanted to share absolutely and your, ask your thoughts on that. I mean, you have to deal with the root causes. Mm-hmm. You have to. And because if you don't, any time that like, you can only, you can only control so much of your environment. Mm-hmm. For a long time, I wouldn't go to certain cities because I knew that my sibling was living there and I might see him walking down the street. So I wouldn't go certain places, mm-hmm. but it got to the point where it's like, okay, I can't stop living my life just because I might potentially run into this person. I never did. Mm -hmm. So why would I stop living just for that, to prevent that experience from potentially happening? It's, I mean, like trauma, it always, like you said, it puts you on high alert. It, it makes you plan out all of the exit plans. It makes you look for all of the ways. I used to sleep with a hammer beside my bed when my husband would be traveling. Like that's not a normal response. No, but it's what you knew. Like it's, it's and that's the, and that's where we can't be too hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's what you knew because you still hadn't fully processed what you yep. had gone through. So, yep. how does someone work through and process the PTSD? How do you do that? Um, I mean, there's a couple of different modalities that can be really helpful. Um, pharmaceuticals, you can get an SSRI, so an antidepressant that can help manage the symptoms that go along with the anxiety and depression piece of the PTSD. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately working with a psychologist who understands the brain mapping and the fragmentation of memories and the dissociation to emotion is really important. Different therapists will have different approaches. I went to one and we did EMDR. So eye movement Mm -hmm. desensitization and retraining, and it completely changed my 
I have heard that multiple times. I have heard that multiple times. It's incredible. Incredible. Um, I'm not the type of person that can follow the bilateral stimulation with my eyes open. So I couldn't follow her fingers back and forth. I do a lot more of the like meditative introspective work with my eyes closed. And we actually had these vibrating pads underneath my thighs that would vibrate alternatively back and forth. The amount of trauma I was able to unpack, the amount of my life I was able to take control of Mm -hmm. just in, I think it was six, seven months that I worked with her. It was incredible incredible. And I'll, I'll see people now that I grew up with, like people from kindergarten when I was five years old. And one of them made a comment the other day and she's like, it's so nice to finally meet you. I sobbed. I sobbed, but I was like, yeah, I'm a totally different person. She's like, you're pretty awesome. Like uh, this is the first time I feel like I'm even meeting you because before mm-hmm. you were somebody's kid sister or you were somebody's daughter and, and you kind of just went through the motions of making everybody else happy and listening to everybody else's story and trying to find a, a way for everybody else to be okay. We didn't know you weren't okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and some people like who would know if you're not going to share, like, that's not, yeah. that's not the kind of story that the average, like the average, no. <laughs> I, I can't say, nope. I can't, I'm not minimizing. I'm not maximizing. It's like, it's just not the average story that mm-hmm. you realize is happening next door. And yeah. you don't go to just, school saying, Oh, Hey, this happened yesterday in the no. bathroom. Right. You know, no. it, they're not, they're not things that you talk about. And I mean, the major pieces of, of the assaults happened when I was so young that I didn't even really understand that it wasn't a normal functioning sibling relationship either. I didn't understand that until I became an adult and was like, whoa, hang on a second. That mm-hmm. wasn't okay. So since you were younger, when a lot of this happened, how do I ask this? I just curious like, do you carry, did you have to process through a lot of shame through that? If you really were almost too young to understand what was happening, because shame is usually one of the things that stop us from speaking up and sharing. So I'm just curious where shame got involved in your story. Um, I remember there was a, an EMDR session that we actually did that was centered around shame. And it was mm-hmm. about the first time that I got my period. Mm-hmm. And how I internalized that, how disgusting I felt because my sibling belittled me for it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a mom who could really emotionally show up for me to mm-hmm. coach me through what this meant and how to deal with it and, and how to, to not feel shameful about it. Mm-hmm. And that was really the only piece though. I didn't feel shameful about any of the assault that happened or any of the grief or the subsequent assaults as a teenager or as a young adult. Mm-hmm. because I didn't cause any of it to happen. You absolutely didn't. And it's just interesting. This is why I want to ask this and I'm not trying to poke. I just really mm-hmm. want to ask this is the fact that, I mean, most of what we feel shame for, we did not cause or create, mm-hmm. but we've created a story about what that shame is and we've identified by it. Um, yeah. The fact that you could process that and say that is phenomenal because it's, I'm so grateful because that wasn't another piece that had, you had mm-hmm. to deal with and work through, which is you had enough pieces. <laughs> you absolutely had enough pieces 
that you had to work through. But do you see what I mean? Like that's mm-hmm. I'm glad because that is something. The shame piece, I did it myself, but the shame piece is a, I mean, is a big factor. And a lot of people say, "Well, you know, I'm just so embarrassed and I'm so shameful." Mm-hmm. I'm like, but "That's your story. Like you're yeah. doing that. It's not something like you are not bad." Yeah. It's, this is a bad thing that happened to you, but you are not bad. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. 100%. That's, that's such a, a foundational message that we have in our home that if you mess up, if you make a mistake, it doesn't make you a bad person. Mm-hmm. Let's learn from those things and let's move forward from them in a more intelligent, more emotionally aware way mm-hmm. that when I look back on my own traumas, it's like, I didn't ask for those men. I tried to, I looked for the helpers. I tried to find the adults and largely I was met with the message of, I don't believe you. Yeah. It was crazy defeating. It Mm. was, um, really, really heartbreaking, but I've gotten to the point now where I don't need them to believe me because I know what happened. Mm -hmm. I don't need their validation for it. And that is a very freeing space to get to, regardless where your story is. You are not tied to the expectations, the outcomes of other people. You're clear. Yeah. And I just, from listening to you talk right now, I'm going to guess that this has changed how you might show up as a person, as a parent, as a, just in the fact of being more open in communication Mm -hmm. than what I'm going to be really stereotypical for a second of age. That's okay. That like as I grew up, <laughs> it's like we don't talk about anything. That's just not yeah. we don't like no depth stuff. We don't and we mm-hmm. certainly don't share it, no matter how bad it is. We don't do that. That's not what you do. Whereas mm-hmm. I come at it from a standpoint that I'm like, oh let's share everything. And I mean it just freaks out a lot of people. It does. Yeah. It yeah. throws some people off. I was gonna ask and share just I had uh counselor say to me a number of years ago, I remember jumping in a room when a sound happened and we were at a table, like I literally jumped and the counselor was like, why did you do that? And I'm like, well, cause it was noisy. And she said, no, no one else in the room jumped. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking like jumped off of my chair. Mm-hmm. And she said, you were experiencing PTSD. And I'm like, what? Like that's not even, we had lived in so much trauma for so long that it was really un." It was just such a crazy life when I go back mm-hmm, and look mm-hmm. at what I lived through. And then I was sharing with you that I recently had surgery, which I just shared online. Yeah. And of course, we don't share all the details. That's not what vulnerability is, right? We don't have to share everything. Yes. <laughs> there, was a, there was probably two or three moments in the hospital where I had some pretty severe complications from surgery alone. And it felt scary, but I remember just kind of internally retreating and focusing, like breathe, do the things you can do, listen to some meditation. Plus you're surrounded by people who are in this fear stricken, mm-hmm. scared state. Plus they're all by themselves because of COVID. So we have no one else to come in for yeah. support. So it was a really very scary time. And it, it, two things happen. My doctor said to me last week, she's like, do you realize how low your levels were? There are people who don't live. And I was like, okay, so that did feel a little bit scary. That was one thing. And the second thing I just wanted to share, because I think maybe it might add some, shed some light for some people is the triggers and the trigger mm-hmm. doesn't have to be the situation, but it's a reminder of the situation. So we were watching a TV show I had an allergic reaction to one of the meds that they gave me, really serious allergic reaction. And um, 
they said the word on the TV show, they said the word Narcan. And I started to bawl, mm. like immediately started to bawl. My husband's like, what's the matter with you? And I said, I just had a flashback. I remember in the middle of the night, they were prepping me to do that and telling me what it was going to look like, how I was going to respond mm-hmm. because I was having such an allergic reaction. I was, I was just immediately in tears. I didn't know how to process that. And I'm yeah. such a doer, keep, go forward, work hard, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. When you experience those things, what are some of the things that you would recommend out of your experience to help yourself to work through that trauma experience? So some of those acute symptoms or responses, I suppose, not symptoms of feeling triggered. I totally understand. We went to Niagara Falls for our anniversary, like weeks after getting the diagnosis, going into a casino with flashing lights and bells and sounds. And it, it felt like everything was kind of closing in the further and further we walked back. Mm-hmm. I had to completely leave. Mm-hmm. I had to lay down somewhere that was kind of close to the ground mm-hmm. and counting actually was really helpful. So reminding myself to, that I, I could focus on something with rules something that had structure to it. My husband, when I would have be having panic attacks, Mm -hmm. my husband would always talk to me about the rules of baseball. And he would be like, so if the, if the person hits it here and it's this, it's called a this, and then they throw it to this base. And it was enough for me to be like, whoa, what are you talking about? But then I would, my brain would get engaged and invested in something else that wasn't the trauma trigger. Yeah. Um, one thing that that really helped me when we started the EMDR, the first thing that we did was a calm place visualization. So creating this sense of calm within ourselves that is a mental place to be able to check out to mm-hmm. that lives and breathes within ourselves. Mm-hmm. We can access it anytime we want, but people can only come there if we invite them to go there. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And then having anchor words. Mm-hmm. That would allow us to get back there. So mine were always aquamarine and calm because the water was aquamarine and it felt very calm there. Mm-hmm. So in times of that acute trauma response, I would just repeat that to myself because having two functions like the bilateral stimulation that mimics the EMDR. Mm-hmm. So it desensitizes everything and it brings the adrenaline response back down. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that is powerful. Thank you for sharing those tips with everyone. Yeah. I, um, it's amazing. When you talk about the breathing and the focus. I would put a headphone in because mm-hmm. yeah, in the hospital, it's traumatic. People are scared. It's the energy is awful. Like it was, mm-hmm. awful. it was just, just where everyone was at. I put a headphone in at one point and I just practiced breathing. I listened to a certain meditation that I have and they came back in and they checked my blood pressure and they said, how are you okay? And I'm like, why? Why? And they said, your blood pressure dropped so much so fast. They're like, are you sure you're okay? I'm like, no, I feel better. Like I was able to take that internal response. So we do have control Mm -hmm. on how our body responds to it. It's not easy, but it's also not easy staying in that heightened state either. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to grow a disciplined practice Mm -hmm. and be mindful of what your triggers are so that you know what to anticipate. You know what the expectations on self are. Mm -hmm. And when you get to this point where you've been practicing this all the time, it kind of becomes your fail safe automatic response 
when those triggers come up. And I think that that's kind of like the pivotal day when you notice that things have changed, Mm -hmm. that you're faced with a trigger, but you're not actually triggered anymore because you have the auto response to go back to the calm place, to listen to the words and play over the words of that meditation, to breathe in that rhythmic way mm-hmm. that you don't, you're, you've become disciplined enough that you don't have to go back and live in that cyclone anymore. Oh, so that is so beautiful. I always say that all that mindset work that we do, like Ed, that mm-hmm. I encourage people, it's a lifelong job. It's not mm-hmm. a one week course, all the mindset work that we do. Yes you have no idea when it's going to pay off. Like you have yes. no idea when you're in that situation. I just kept saying gratitude. Thank you for the, thank you for the work, mm-hmm. for the practice that you've done and just working on that. So it's, you don't know when that is going to be. Mm-hmm. A you. So this is, is this fair to say this is a big part of your life's work now? It's huge. It's everything that I do is talking to people about trauma is writing about it is normalizing it mm-hmm. that it's, it's, it's a normal human experience to experience not awesome things. It's not normal to have to be unsupported in those things. Mm-hmm. So finding and creating systems that work for yourself, talking about it openly, finding people that you can confide in when these things do happen. That that's everything that I do now. Mm-hmm. It, and we're back to again, that, you know, I always believe that our stories and what we live through is really where our superpowers are. Mm-hmm. Even if it's painful. It's what our superpowers are. So I thank you for stepping into a really uncomfortable space to do something magical, to make a difference in other people's lives when you could have just taken it and shoved it all down, but you now have freed yourself and you are helping others. So I really thank you for that. Cause I think I want that to be a, an, a lesson and example for other people that mm-hmm. I know this, I know the work is hard. I know it's hard, mm-hmm. but what you're doing now and the impact and the ripple that you're creating, sadly, you're the one to do it because you lived it. Like it's you live the purpose in me living it. I know I'm not, and this is where it's yeah. not like, I don't wish stuff like that on anybody. No, of course not. Any of that, but you're doing something with it, right? We don't have mm-hmm. a choice what happens to us. We have a choice on how we respond. Yes. And how you're responding is um, to make a difference. So yeah. I thank you for that. It's, it's honestly my pleasure, like to sit with people in these really horribly uncomfortable moments and to to remind them that it's safe for them to express the things that they've gone through or the things that they've witnessed, Mm -hmm. they're feeling about those things and how long they've held it all inside. Lifetimes. Lifetimes. It's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to witness somebody go through that process and get to the other side and be like, I can talk about this now without going into a tailspin. Mm -hmm. It's, it's incredible. And I'm, I'm very, very honored. And I recognize um, the privilege that I have to be able to do that, to sit with people in those moments, because it takes a lot of trust and vulnerability oh. to do that with somebody a lot. hundred percent, hundred percent. Right. We can't, I, we just can't live. We can't teach on anything we haven't lived. And no, and you're right. We just can't mm-hmm. that all the time. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm like, well, what did you live? And like, what does that matter? I'm like, it's everything. It's everything because it, yeah. there is an author. How you want to know how to be authentic. You cannot teach on something you have not lived. Yeah. So I, again, I thank you for that. You published a book just in July. Tell us I about did. your book. Um, 
the process of writing in a journal has always been like that safe zone for me, mm-hmm. um, especially in those foundational years where people weren't like my parents weren't believing what had happened and and things were really, really, really heavy. I would retreat to the journals. I would write poetry, sometimes by angsty candlelight and Holly McNarland playing in the background kind of thing. Very much dating myself with that, but that's 100% okay. Um, But that's where the safety was. So when I was going through PTSD recovery, I pulled out a journal that a client had gifted to me and I thought, I'm going to start writing again. And I pulled out these beautiful, heartbreaking chaotic moments and put them into prose. And then one day I said to my psychologist, I think I'm going to try and have this published. And she, like my husband was like, of course you are. Of course you're going to try and do something with this. So I turned it into a manuscript and I sent it out to a whack of publishers and a couple responded. And then I chose one and I got it published, but it was important to me. And I I've learned in the process of doing all of that and putting it all together, that it's not just my story anymore. It echoes the story of so many people. Yeah. That really struggle to find their words and yeah. And it's, it's also become kind of like a springboard for other people to read a paragraph and be like, Oh my God, that's my story. That wrapped up in three sentences is everything that I have lived. But then they see the progression of thought and they see the progression to the other side Mm -hmm. that you don't have to stay stuck in that chaos anymore. No, it's, it's called the years of breaking. Is Mm -hmm. that Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is beautiful. And how you said about it's not being your story anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I have always said to my clients that there comes a point where the lessons that you've learned, like they're actually not for you anymore. Like actually you've lived, you, you found your way to the other side. It's your job to pay that forward in some way, shape or form. I don't say that lightly because, and not out of obligation because not everybody's going to be called to that, but there's a lot of people that are, there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. that are, are, and it's, it's hard to step into that space, but they can make a, a massive impact and ease someone else's journey in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. Where can people find you? Oh, in your podcast. Sorry. Your, oh, your podcast just launched. Yes. It just launched. Um, my friend Rachel and I have been hemming and hawing and trying to figure out a way to collaborate with each other for probably the past four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all comes back to like these uncomfortable conversations to have about really big things. Our first episode was about miscarriage. Our second was about cancer. Like they're not light romantic topics to be talking about. Um, and then through conversation, she is very much a morning person who wakes up at five o'clock in the morning and does her workout and stuff. That's where the name comes from. That's, okay, where, the, that's where it comes from. The morning-ish. Um, because <laughs> I am ish. not. I am ish. ish. Um, because she will wake up in the morning and there will be about 17 voice notes in Voxer from me about, we can do this. And what about this topic? And let's talk to this person. I'm the night owl. She's the morning. So it kind of, it, it merges, it merges really nicely together, but it's, it's a very refreshing space to be. And we've been able to find that people are really appreciating the sense of the candidness and, and the honesty that is, that is there. So 
Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love, I love when people talk about the things that people don't <laughs> like, That is totally my jam because it's yep. just, if you want to start to normalize it, you have to talk about it. It's just absolutely, that it's that simple. There's no, and I always say, if you're so afraid of the judge, I learned this the hard way, but if you're so afraid of the judgment of others, put it in the conversation first, put it in the mm-hmm. conversation first and then let it drop because yeah. instead of waiting for this, oh my gosh, or the story of what's, what are people going to say or think, just mm-hmm. say what you're talking about. And yeah. it really starts to, you give it a chance for it to normalize. Yes. Wow. Okay. So thank you. So where can people find you? I, they can find me across the board. So whether it's Facebook website, Instagram, it's all Moyer and co it's playing a little bit of respect to those parental roots with my dad. So my maiden name is Moyer, but the and co is and collaboration. It's not and company because I like to work with other people Mm -hmm. to create this beautiful support network. Because everybody's healing journey is going to look different and that's perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. I love the collaboration piece because I think that that's really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two more questions that I want to ask you. The first is, is what impact do you want to create in the world? God, that's a big one. I wasn't expecting that. Really? Um, <laughs> I, it's okay. I like the surprise. It's funny because I, I, I think about impact all the time. I just want people to feel okay and feel at home in themselves. It's not a big earth shattering. I want world peace. I think I, I just want them to feel secure in who they are so that they can show up for themselves. It's funny because we, I think that's beautiful. And I just want to say that we tend to think of impact and think, okay, if it's not this big global thing, then mm-hmm. it's not big. If you don't make an impact on the small levels, you're never going to make one on the bigger, mm-hmm. like it's not going to happen. So mm-hmm. making a change and helping people to feel okay in themselves is massive, right? Yeah. It's massive. So you can't make the bigger, you can't make a bigger ripple effect until you start with the, with the average day person. And we all know, especially this year, I think. There's a lot of people who are struggling. There's a lot. Oh gosh, yeah. Like there's a, there is a such a huge number of people who are struggling, and they might not even know how to process, or they might be judging and go, but it's not as bad as right. what you went through. It's mm-hmm. not as bad as this. Um, yeah, I just think that that we get stuck in that cycle. So totally, yeah. absolutely, we do. Yeah. Making that difference one-on-one. I love it. I have to ask this question because it's my signature question at the end. What lesson in life are you most grateful for? My dad said it to me at a very young age. You have to look out for number one. Mm. He told me that when I was so little and it has stayed with me forever because nobody else is going to go back and save that little girl from the things that she went through. I have to do that. Mm. I have to do that. I have to show up for myself and save myself. Nobody else is going to do that healing work and pull me out of those depths. I had to do it for me. Mm -hmm. Wow. And do you find, how do you look at that little girl now? Um, I nurture her and I cradle her in my lap and I actually did an entire EMDR session that it was starting, we, we, my psychologist was like, I want you to go back to the place where you felt shame the first time the assault happened. 
And I looked, I opened my eyes when I totally was not supposed to open my eyes. And I said, can I go back there as an adult? And she's like, this is your session. You can do whatever you want to do. I'm like, okay. Cause I, I just, I felt this intense pull to go back there in my mind and take her by the hand and pull her out of that space. I did that. I showed up for myself in a really beautiful, profound way that I continue to. I remind myself that I'm not her anymore, but I went back and I saved her. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, she has led you to, like, I don't want to say she saved you, but she, she like the two of you worked together. And I have this, mm-hmm. I have a big belief about whole, our, our future self is always guiding us. If we're, mm-hmm. listening, to this mm-hmm. if we're listening, that future self is guiding us. And we can't look back. I was a long time where I looked back at pictures of myself and I was angry at her for not doing more. I was angry at her for, I'm just being very real. Mm -hmm. And I had, I was angry at her for where she had gotten to in life. And then I had to literally put that picture up on my wall. I wrote a letter to her Mm -hmm. and thanked her for getting me this far. Like I literally a thank you letter that she fought so hard to keep going when most people would have quit that I thanked her. And I, I came, I created so much peace with where she was at that I can look at that now, that picture. And I'm like, Oh, you are such a fighter. Like I just, right. It's a, so I think that our future self is always pulling us. And I think we have to have grace for our younger self who was doing the best she could with what she had. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I cannot thank you enough for a very candid, like a very candid conversation and so many tips that you have given to other people of how to recognize PTSD or recognize just trauma and Mm -hmm. what our body and how our body is responding to it. So I honestly cannot thank you enough for how real and raw you have been. You have been an incredible guest. This is going to be a great episode. Thank you so much. Thank you for having this forum to be able to share on. It's, it's a, it's an incredible thing to, to help other people, but to talk just in a very candid, open, honest, and raw way about these things because everybody goes through them. Oh, they all do. And I I think now you've got a space. Hopefully if you're listening to this and you are in this space, you can recognize that you have two people who are discussing this and saying like, there's nothing wrong with you and it's okay. And find someone or find like work. You can work through it. It's not easy work. No. Oh gosh. No, (laughs) not, but I always say we get to choose our hard, right? That's hard. Mm -hmm. But staying in that really like handcuffed position is hard too. So we choose our hard. We always do. So if you're listening to this, please know that you're not alone. And it is some of the most difficult work you're going to do, but some of the most profound work that you're going to do. 100 percent yeah thank you so much thank you thank you so much for tuning in to the own your choices own your life podcast if you love this episode please submit a rating and review on itunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast i love connecting and meeting you so please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or instagram stories at marsha van w and until next time remember when you own your choices you truly own your life